Welcome here. We all know that it's an important day. Is that right? You bet. It is game seven of the Raptors 76ers playoff game. Talk about a moral dilemma for a basketball fan. There's two game sevens on today. There's almost three. And there's, a, I think, Champions League championship game, if you're a soccer fan, is also uh, today. And it's Mother's Day. So uh, we're just going to take a moment to pray for the uh, husbands in the room. No. Uh, yep. Well, happy Mother's Day. Uh, to you moms out there, it's, uh, it's great to be together on this day. Um, we are continuing our series, Long Story Short, this morning. Nine weeks ago, we began this journey. And we've gotten all the way through the Old Testament, and Kendall kind of got us into the New Testament last week. And so if it's your first week, it's not too late. Uh, just jump right in where, wherever we're at. This is, a great actually, this is a great spot, actually, to jump in as we head into the New Testament. And it's about to get really, really good here as we talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus uh, this morning. The Bible's a big book. In fact, it's 66 books made up into one book. It's 773,692 words long, but who's counting? It has 40 human authors that I believe were inspired by God, and those authors are farmers, fishermen, poets, kings, doctors, prophets, tax collectors, all sorts of different folks. Three different languages it was written in, and it spanned over 15 centuries. You've got romantic comedies, you've got tragedies, you've got action, adventure, action adventures. There's some musicals, and there's a lot of documentaries. What I'm getting at is this, the Bible, no matter whether you believe it to be inspired by God or not, whatever your thoughts about it may, whatever your thoughts about it, that may be, it's an amazing book because it reveals to us something about the human condition and something about God. It's probably, it is the most authoritative work in history on what's right and wrong with humanity and what's right and wrong in this world. And we've seen that as we've gone through the narrative of Scripture over these weeks. And ultimately reveals the character of God, who He is and who He is not. And if you've missed this series and you're not coming back for any more, let me give you the Coles Notes version. Let me summarize the Bible in three words. You ready for this? God is love. That's it. See you next week. We, we, could end it, we could end it right there. The long story short could have been very short. It could have been much shorter than we've made it. There's more than 400 names of God in Scripture. He's called Protector, Counselor, Mighty, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Creator, Healer, Redeemer, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He is all of that and more. But if you said, tell me one thing about God that I know to be true, it's that God is love. There's a thousand other descriptors and all those things are true. But God is love, is the truest thing about God. And I know that there are probably more reasons than I'm even aware of why some of you may not believe that to be true. Sometimes there are people that represent God in a way that misrepresents God. And I'm sorry for that. I, some of you have had things done to you or said to you by people that claim to represent God, but they've completely misrepresented him to you. But just because that might be true of your experience doesn't mean that that's necessarily true of God. And I know that sometimes our experience can be so painful and so difficult that it is hard for us to actually believe that there is a God, and if there is, how could this God actually be good? And I'm not here to brush that aside this morning or pretend like that kind of stuff doesn't happen in our lives. That's not the type of church we are. But I also think that our experiences, that God isn't defined by our experiences. And we don't, we see this most clearly in the death and resurrection of Jesus. John's the one who said, God is love. 
in 1 John 4.16. And the same guy who said that also wrote a gospel. And in that gospel, in verse 3, verse 16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Then John says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And the closest thing I can come to explaining the Heavenly Father's love for you would probably be reflecting on my own love for my kids as a father. As incomplete and limited as that is, it's probably the greatest glimpse I have into the Heavenly Father's love. And when my kids were born, and I've talked about this before, but I remember thinking about this most profoundly when my oldest son was born, because there was a moment when he was born uh, where he couldn't breathe. And I remember the, the doctors rushing into the room. You know, all of a sudden we went from this uh, moment of, uh, this is going to be the, this is the best moment of our lives, and then a split second later, feeling like it could be the most tragic moment of our lives as we didn't know what was happening. And we had this room full of all these doctors and nurses and uh, trying to get our kid to breathe, and it took us a while to figure out what was actually happening. And I remember reflecting back on that moment, how much... Uh, the potential of losing someone I hadn't even met yet. How devastating that thought was. And we think about this with moms. When, you know, when, when a baby comes out, and we think about this on Mother's Day, and there's this slimy alien figure. And as fathers, you just look at it and you're like, no, I'm good. Uh, but, but moms, they just, there's this love that's, just there. And I think as parents, we recognize this, that before your kid's done anything, before they've wiped their nose, before they can go to the bathroom by themselves, before they take their first steps, before any of that stuff happens, there's a love that's already there. Not because of anything they've done, but because they're yours. And God doesn't love us based on what we've accomplished, based on who we are, based on how good we are, based on our resume, but God loves us because of who he is. God is love. When you succeed, God says, I love you. When you fail, God says, I love you. When you have faith, God says, I love you. When you doubt, God says, I love you. And his love is unchanging. It's his answer to everything. God is love. And we see this most profoundly revealed in history and in scripture in the cross and the empty tomb, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. They need each other. Often we can talk about hope in our world without the cross, or we talk about the cross without a picture of hope. And the church in general, especially in the West, focuses on and speaks often of the cross, and rightfully so. This is the moment, that the mystery of the incarnation that Kendall did such a great job of talking about last week where God takes on human flesh and makes his home among us. He participates in our humanity. He experiences pain. He experiences suffering. He suffers at the hands of those whom he created. God identifies with humanity in its pain and all of its mess, and God pays the price of sin. He experiences the penalty and the consequence of sin, and he experiences death itself. But often we stay there, and the gospel story is not only one of identification and suffering, but one of victory over the powers of evil and death. This is why the cross and the empty tomb belong together. But in our society, we want hope without the cross. We want victory without death. This shows up quite clearly in evolutionary ideas and what I would call the myth of progress. It's the combination of scientific and economic advances with democratic freedom over the last 200 years that kind of gave the impression that we can solve the world's problems on our own. That if we could just develop sciences enough, if we could uh, answer life's questions far enough, that we could be smart enough, that we could figure it out, and that we could solve what's wrong with the world. This utopian dream is in fact somewhat parallel and echoes the Christian vision. And so often as Jesus followers, we can buy into it that history is moving towards a goal. 
But the myth of prog- progress tells us that goal is answered from within rather than a gift that comes from elsewhere. We will become what we have the potential to be by education and hard work. This is kind of the gospel of our culture. We want hope. We want resurrection without the cross. The, we- the real problem with the myth of progress is that it can't deal with evil. The myth cannot deal with evil for a few reasons. First, you just look at history. If evolution gave us Hiroshima and Auschwitz and other horrific incidences in our history, whatever may or may not be true about biological evolution, the cosmos as a whole is simply not evolving towards a golden future. Left on its own, the world is not just becoming a better and better and better place. In fact, if we realize anything in our age, it's that the development The evolution of humanity, the development of sciences only multiplies or expands what already lies in the human heart. Our potential for evil actually increases. We want hope without the cross. We want good news without bad news. And Christians have often gone along with the general idea of progress because there's a part of it, like I said, that echoes with the human or with the biblical story. I think followers of Jesus have recognized this in our culture and we've overreacted. We've said, you know, this this, trying to find hope without Jesus, without the cross, is a lost cause. And so we emphasize the cross. And we end up coming to the emphasis of the reality of death, of sin, of judgment. We actually take hope mostly out of the biblical story. And not to get too nerdy, but just stay with me for a second, but the influence of Plato's thinking, so Plato kind of created this thought that the material world was bad and the spiritual world was good, and Christians, without realizing it, can adapt that type of thinking. There's a group in the, uh, in the, at the same time as the church was developing called Gnostics, and they believed that the material world was an inferior and dark place, and the material world is evil inherently in its existence. And so Christians that started buying into this idea started talking about a spiritual life that was separate from the physical life. This actually starts to show up in some of our hymns. Some great hymns that I love to sing. And maybe you know some of them. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. Come on. I'm die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Sing it with me. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Super catchy, but just completely unbiblical. (laughs) Super catchy. But is the message and the hope of Scripture... God is going to take our spirit and forfeit or throw away this whole creation project that we started with at the beginning of the series and say, oh, the heck with it. What I created is so messed up. I'm just going to destroy everything. I'm going to destroy the world. I'm going to destroy people. And I'm just going to take people's spirits to some other utopic place. That's a Platonic idea. That comes from Plato. It's actually not a Christian idea. If you move away from materialistic optimism without embracing Christianity, you're quite likely to end up with that type of thinking. Most of us probably grew up with that type of thinking, and it's just actually not Christian at all. The problem with this emphasis on Jesus coming to take our spirits away to some other place is that 
This view doesn't account for the goodness and the beauty that God had in mind when he created the world. It doesn't take into account Genesis 1 and 2 like we talked about in the first week or Genesis or Revelation 21 and 22. Christians who fundamentally believe this will always have less care for the person, for the suffering, for reconciliation, for justice, for healing, for mission, because they don't actually believe that God cares about what's happening in this world anymore. And so what we've ended up with is people who claim to follow Jesus, but everything that comes out of their mouth is about judgment, is about sin, is about repentance, and that's the good news. God's done with this project that he started, and he's doing something else, and you just better get your fire insurance, believe in Jesus, so that when you die, someday he can take you away. That's been the gospel. That's been the good news. Let me tell you a, a quick little story. Every, uh, every Saturday when I first moved to Calgary for the first couple of years, I went out for breakfast at the Lido Cafe. Everybody say the Lido. I don't know what comes to mind when you say the Lido, but uh, probably what comes to mind is exactly what it was. Just, you know, it's, it's like this old cafe diner. It was in Kensington. Had anybody ever eaten at the Lido Cafe before? Okay, a few. Okay. The Lido Cafe. Classic. And I remember when I first moved to Calgary 15 years ago, you could go to the Lido Cafe and you could get breakfast for under $5, the whole meal deal. And I remember there was a, we had a waitress named Sue, and Sue would serve us every Saturday morning at 8 o'clock, and the three of us guys, we would order hash browns with ham and over medium eggs. Is John Ham here this morning? John was one of those three. John's a worship leader here at SunWest. So John and me... And me and another guy named Gord, we go to the Lido every Saturday morning. And at the Lido, there was these jukeboxes at each of the booths. You guys remember these? Okay. And so what would happen is you'd put money into the jukebox, and you would select, uh, you know, there was A through Z. Every one of them had a page of like 100 songs on them. So like tons and tons of songs, right? And... And so what we would do is every Saturday morning, we would put money into the jukebox, and we would blindly select some numbers on the jukebox. And then whatever song played, and just so you know, it didn't just play at your booth, like all the booths with the speakers in it, it would play in the whole restaurant at the Lido, right? So, you know, so we got some, we got some great uh, kind of classics uh, that were just very, that were that were awesome, right? Um, you know, we had the Beatles, and, you know, we had Cat Stevens, and we had, you know, certain guys that, you know, are good people to wake up to in the morning. There was this one morning where John uh, put in money, goes like this, and this is the song that came out of the jukebox. So you can picture people there for Mother's Day brunch, <laughs> trying to enjoy their breakfast, and you got Marilyn Manson, beautiful people, playing on the jukeboxes in the, in the whole restaurant, just blasting, and you can't turn it off, right? Like, once it's on, it's on, and so uh, we just kind of assume this position. <laughs> like, when is this going to be over? Have you ever been in a situation where you haven't wanted to be associated with the message or the song being played like you felt embarrassed. In that moment, I was just like, I, I was cringing in my seat, like, how can I get out of this restaurant? Everybody's looking at us like, who are these guys who listen to heavy metal, demonic music at 8 a.m. in the morning at the Lido Cafe while these families are here trying to enjoy their brunch or breakfast? And it was embarrassing. And often I feel like that when I think of the Christian message, the Christian song, so to speak, that's been sung over recent decades, it, it makes me want to do this. Because we actually haven't 
communicated the good news. We haven't actually sang a song or played a song that people want to be a part of, that people want to sing along to. And so the result is often we just avoid playing a song altogether. And I think many of us find ourselves there. We don't talk about the good news. We don't talk about the gospel. We, we've actually stopped singing the song and inviting people to a song that's worth singing because we've forgotten the original song. And the original song of the gospel needs the cross and the empty tomb. The song of the Jesus followers, the song of the cross and the resurrection, they go together. They tell the reality of our sinful story, the reality of our brokenness, and at the cross we see the ugliness of humanity, but with the resurrection we see hope that doesn't deny the cross, doesn't deny suffering, doesn't deny pain, doesn't deny your story, but actually points to a greater reality that can redeem it and embrace it and retell it. The central Christian affirmation is that what the Creator God has done in Jesus Christ and supremely in His resurrection is what He intends to do for the whole world. This is why Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15 is referred to, His resurrection is referred to as the first fruits of all creation because basically what Paul is saying is that what happened to Jesus happens to us. And that's why I love in each of the Gospels, those last couple of chapters, after the resurrection, we get a glimpse, not only at the history of Jesus, but into the destiny of humanity. That Jesus was given a new body. That Jesus conquered death victoriously. That Jesus was recognizable by the people that knew him but not immediately recognizable because there was something different about him in his new resurrected body. But he was physical. He was eating. He was walking. But yet he was appearing in rooms and walking through walls, and there was something beautiful and glorious about this immortal resurrected body. And what Paul tells us is that what happened to Jesus gets to happen to those who are in Christ. And when we celebrate baptism in the church, which we're going to do in another month, we celebrate the identification with the suffering and pain of Jesus and then the identification with him in his resurrection. Confessing that Jesus didn't come just to take us away from his creation project, but he came to redeem it. He came to give us hope. He came to reconcile. He came to renew. He came to restore. This is the beautiful gospel song that Jesus invites us to sing along with. The love of God is seen when we embrace the cross and the resurrection. It's not a love, it's not a hope that ignores the suffering that's going on in your life or the pain that you experienced. But it's not a one that stays there or dwells there and just waits for some day when we all die and God can take us away to heaven. It's both end. In the light of Mother's Day, I thought the... The micro story we look at, so if you've noticed, what we've tried to do in this series, we've been looking at the macro story of Scripture kind of told within some micro stories along the way. The micro story I want to look at is one of an important woman in the gospel story. We're going to look at one little story and, I, and one person by the name of Mary. and I, Not Mary, the mother of Jesus. That would have been great for Mother's Day, but Mary Magdalene. So Jesus lived. He died... It's game over. So let's go back to that moment before the resurrection. Jesus is three days dead. And this is where we pick up the story in John. In verse 11, Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stopped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. Let me just hit the pause button right here before we continue the story. There's a phenomenon in psychology called hindsight bias. And what that means is when you know the outcome of an event, you tend to assume the ending as if it was inevitable. But let's be very, very clear right here. Mary had no idea that Jesus was going to be resurrected. If you've ever experienced the death of a loved one, 
You can put yourself in Mary's shoes right there, and, and you know that this is what Mary is currently experiencing. The reason she went to the grave was to anoint Jesus' body, to put spices on the body. Before Peter goes out of the boat, we know that he walks on water, so sometimes we just assume the end of the story, and then we miss the miracle in the story. Before Jesus goes to the cross, we know that the resurrection is three days away, and because of that, we lose something in the story. Mary did not know this. Mary did not expect that Jesus would be resurrected. There is no precedent. There is no category. There is zero expectation on Mary's part that this was about to happen. And we see even in the next slide, she didn't recognize Jesus. So she turned to leave and saw someone standing there, and it was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was a gardener. And I just want to pause there again. And without getting into the whole book of John, and I've spoken on this a few times here, but John really goes back to much of the creation metaphors that we see in the creation story that we talked about the first week. And this is one of them here. That Jesus thought, or that she thought Jesus was a gardener. This is an echo of the creation story that Jesus is the new Adam. That Adam in the very beginning of the biblical story was given the commandment to take care of the earth. And here in the resurrection story we see that Jesus is being confused by Mary as a gardener. And this in and of itself, you're like, that's kind of a vague um, kind of connection, don't you think? If you take all of John, there is connection after connection after connection with the creation story. In the next paragraph, which we're not going to read, but you'll see the story where Jesus breathes his Holy Spirit into his disciples, which is an echo of when God breathed life into Adam. Lots of new creation themes. So really what's happening here is John wants us to see that God is doing something new. That the old creation project is about to get redone. Not forgotten about, but Jesus is the new Adam. In some miraculous way, God is going to redeem and, keep and, and continue what he started in the creation story in a new way through Jesus Christ. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cry, cried out, Rabbani, which is Hebrew for teacher. What a moment. Mary goes from complete agony and defeat at the loss of Jesus to recognizing that he's still alive. Mary never thought she would hear his voice again. And then he calls her by name, which is an echo of John 10.10, when Jesus says, my sheep know my voice, and I call them by name. Jesus calls Mary by name. God knows your name. God knows your name. And I want you to hear me say this. You need a faith with your name on it. You need a faith with your name on it. I think many of us have walked through life with, with faith as an idea, something that we believe in, something we've heard about. We've, we've heard other people talk, tell stories about, you know, the way God spoke to them. We've, you've listened to me or other pastors talk about how God spoke to them or uh, some kind of connection they've had with God. You've, many of you listen to podcasts every week with people talking about God. You've read books. But there's something profound and transformative when God speaks your name, when God speaks to you. I believe what Jesus wants to give us is not secondhand faith. He wants to give us firsthand faith. He wants to give us a faith with our name on it. He knows your name. He knows your story. And he wants to speak your name. Maybe you came to church this morning and God was just an idea. You don't know if God is paying attention to your life. You don't know if God is aware of what's going on in your life. Mary will, can identify with you, which you're going to see in a second, but God speaks her name. 
It's personal. Mary, Jesus says, and at that moment when he spoke her name, she turned to him and cried out, Rabbi, which, which is Hebrew for teacher, don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go and find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And that's an incredible statement right there. Because of the resurrection, what is true of Jesus' relationship with God can be true of our relationship with God. Jesus says, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. There's no need for secondhand faith. You can know God as Father. This is the invitation of the resurrection. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them this message. So we're not entirely sure what happens to Mary after this. She walks off the pages of Scripture. But what I do know is that she holds the distinction for being, and catch this, an apostle to the apostles. She holds the distinction of being the first person to give the gospel message. The first person Jesus entrusted with the gospel message is this woman. Now listen, if you've ever heard someone, some Christian leader, pastor, theologian, talk about women and leadership, women in ministry, that God doesn't use women in those leadership roles, you can just kindly invite them to read their Bible. Jesus gives the most important responsibility in the gospel story to Mary. Not to Peter, not to John, not to the guys, not to the men, to Mary, to a woman. And she's got to be the least likely candidate. Why? Well, we don't know much about Mary, but we know two things. She's from a region called Magdala, and she was possessed by seven demons. We learn this from Luke chapter 8. It says, soon afterward, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took his 12 disciples with them, along with them, women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he cast out seven demons. So I don't know what picture you get in your mind when you read a comment like that, that Jesus passed out or cast out seven demons. Some of you are replaying some horror film that you've seen, and we, we don't exactly know what this event looked like or what happened, but I think it's safe to say that if you have seven demons in you, you've got problems. Would you guys agree with that? She's, she's got at least seven problems. This is the definition of dysfunctional. She has seven problems she can't solve, seven mistakes she can't fix. On, on top of that, seven is a symbolic number in the Jewish world that means complete. So she is a complete mess. Completely dysfunctional. She's broken in seven places, fully broken. I don't know your story, but my guess is that your story is not even as dysfunctional as Mary's. I mean, I'd ask if anybody had seven demons cast out of them, but I'll, I'll just leave that. I, but this, these are the type of people that we tend to give up on. These are the type of people that we tend to write off. People that are beyond hope, that we can't help, that we don't know how to help. But not God. What he, he does is he finds a way of weaving people that are beyond hope, that we don't know what to do with, that are completely dysfunctional, a complete mess, and he rewrites their story. She had gone from being an outcast to being his follower. Early Jewish teachers didn't have female disciples, and they certainly didn't have female disciples who had been possessed by demons. 
Jewish men weren't supposed to study with, travel with women, and they especially weren't supposed to study with or travel with women like Mary. But we see in Luke that Jesus is on the road traveling with his group of disciples, which include women, which Mary was one of them. They traveled with Jesus. They learned from Jesus. When Jesus went to the cross, it was the women who stayed at the cross till the end, not the men. They were the first to the empty tomb, the first to see the risen Jesus, and first to proclaim that he is risen. And Mary, this complete mess, is at the center of it all. She is the least likely candidate for this role and the most important scene in all of Scripture. But this is who God chooses. And this is one of the reasons why I love God, because He goes after the people that you and I write off. And He gives hope to people that we think are hopeless. This is who He chooses. The means is the message. Now, in a patriarchal culture like this one, a man's world like the first century Judaism, a woman's testimony was not even valid in court. So let me speak about the resurrection for a second, the authenticity of the resurrection. If you were going to start a world religion and you wanted to be authenticated and you wanted to have followers that would believe in it, the last thing you would do is select a woman to go and proclaim this message. And the last thing you would do even beyond that last thing was select a woman that was a complete mess who had been possessed by demons. The fact that the gospel is authenticized by women, and particularly by this woman, actually, ironically, speaks to the authenticity of the gospel. The prominent role of women in the Easter story is a sure sign of its authenticity. And then you combine that with the fact that the followers of Jesus, Jesus, by the tens and by the hundreds, were willing to die and give up their lives for what, an idea? No, what happened, and we read in 1 Corinthians 15, is that Jesus was resurrected and he appeared to 500 or more people. And those people, after having seen Jesus with their very own eyes, were willing to give their lives for the advancement of this kingdom message. The resurrection changed everything. Not just some nice idea. Not some platonic spiritual idea that, you know, God just exists in the spiritual realm. It was a physical, real-world idea that transformed these men and women. Let me ask you a sentence. A question. What's the central fact of your life? That's probably a strange question, right? You've never asked that. You've never been asked that, maybe. What defines you? What is the most important event in your past? If I were to say, tell me your story, what is the event or the combination of events that makes you, you? My guess is if you went to Mary and you said, what's the central fact of your life? What's a defining moment in your story? She would say, well, I was possessed by seven demons. Right? That's probably a pretty central fact. Would you agree? If I was meeting with you over coffee and I said, tell me the central fact about your life. Tell me the most defining thing about you. Maybe share with me your pain, your suffering, your disappointment, What is it? What would you say to me? Our world is filled with so much trauma, wars, genocide, sex, trafficking, child abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, bullying. You fill in the blank. There is so much brokenness in this world, in your story, and in my story, that we need so much healing and hope. And most of us have had a few painful experiences in our life that we would look at and say, this is the central fact about my story. And often our lives become some kind of reaction to what other people have done to us or what we have done, that we're reaping the consequences of our own decisions. 
we live our lives in reaction to those moments, trying to better ourselves, trying to move on, but the reality is that we can't do it alone. We all have our demons. The beautiful thing about the story of Mary is it's the story of each one of us. And I think Jesus picked such a severe case to be the main carrier of his message because he wanted to make sure the message included everybody. Whatever the central fact of your life is, I know this fact. Even though I don't know your story, I know that that fact doesn't need to define your future. Why? Why? Because the tomb is empty. I don't know your story, but I have faith that Jesus was resurrected, physically resurrected. I believe in the death and the resurrection. I understand that there's suffering and pain in your story, but I also believe that there's resurrection hope. And Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that is living in those who have given their lives to Christ. This is what changes the game, the cross and the resurrection together. You don't have to ignore the past. You don't have to ignore that central fact of your life. You can look it square in the eyes, and you can exchange it that central fact, whatever it is, for a new fact, and that's resurrection. If you were to ask Mary, post-resurrection, what's the central fact of your life, she probably wouldn't even talk about the demons anymore. She would talk about the resurrected Lord, right? If you were a follower of Jesus, the central fact of your life is the resurrection of Jesus. Regardless of your individual story. That Jesus invites us to exchange whatever your past is for resurrection hope. The resurrection is something we celebrate every day and in every way. God is in the resurrection business. He resurrects relationships. He resurrects hopes. He resurrects dreams. He resurrects parts of our personality that died a long time ago. There's some of you here this morning that need hope. And Mary, the unlikely candidate, is here to proclaim hope to you that he is risen, and that changes everything. It changes your story, and it changes my story. Now, I want to change directions a little bit here this morning. I was uh, sitting in the, the boardroom to my left, uh, preparing to talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus this morning. Um, and I feel like I need to share this, that I, I got a text a couple of minutes before service started. And, uh, and many of you know Jeff and Sherry Nickel. Uh, and Jeff has been battling with cancer for a while. We've been praying for him as a church. Um, and Anita Thiessen, who uh, is close with the family and also helps with some of our caring ministries here at SunWest, uh, she, she sent me a text and she said, sorry, I know church is starting. Sherry just called. She thinks Jeff is passing away today. I'm on my way out there now. I'll keep you posted, but please send out prayer. And uh, so I, I haven't heard an update as of this point. Uh, but we do know that Jeff's uh, cancer has become quite aggressive over the last few weeks. Um, and I was just struck as, as, as uh, Anita's sending me this text, right, that this, uh, this tension between the death and the resurrection of Jesus, between the cross and the empty tomb, is the tension that we live with as human beings. Uh, and the beautiful thing is that that Jeff is somebody that believes wholeheartedly in the resurrection power of Jesus. Uh, and that however the story turns out, uh, it's just a comma, it's not a period. The resurrection of Jesus ensures that everything in our life, no matter how brutal, traumatic it is, turns into a comma, not a period. It's not the end of the story. It's just part of the story. And I think it would be really important for us as a church family uh, to take a moment and pray for Jeff and Sherry, 
Their kids are Caden and Mark and Chloe. Uh, Chloe is in uh, Germany, uh, so she's not even able to be with the family. Uh, and we don't know how this is going to unfold, but we'll, we'll keep you informed as a church family as, the, as this week progresses, um, probably through our uh, constant contact e-news um, about how to pray or what, what's happening or how you can uh, be of support to the family. So I'm going to invite us to actually take a moment and pray. Uh, wherever you are, I'm going to invite you to pray. Uh, I know some of you aren't comfortable with praying, and that's totally fine. There's no pressure to pray. But if you're someone that feels um, comfortable praying with others, I invite you just to kind of gather, even if you don't know Jeff and Sherry, um, just pray for them. If you know them, uh, great, pray for them, obviously. And uh, just in a, yeah, whoever's around you, if someone's comfortable enough to lead out, just pray out loud. Um, and if you don't want to do that, you can pray uh, in, the, in quietness as well. So I invite you to do that right now. Father, we we thank you that uh, you sent your son, Jesus, to earth uh, in flesh to experience horrific suffering and pain and the worst of humanity. Lord, we thank you that you can identify with us in our suffering. Lord, we thank you that you can identify with Jeff and Sherry and with Caden and Mark and Chloe. We thank you that you went to the depths of hell and came back so that we can say with confidence that regardless of what we experience on this earth, Lord, it is not beyond the scope of your love, of your hope, of your grace, of your redemption. And we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for hope. And Lord, we thank you for however Jeff and Sherry's story unfold here in the next hours and days and weeks. That your resurrection hope goes beyond the grave, it goes beyond death, goes beyond our particular stories, that it goes beyond cancer. So Father, we just pray that you would fill them with resurrection hope in these minutes. You would fill them with your spirit. Lord, we pray for miraculous recovery. We thank you that Jeff's faith has a name on it that you called him by name. And because of that, Lord, he has this hope that is beyond cancer. And so we pray that you would comfort the family now in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray for those in this room that have never experienced hope or don't understand that hope that you would call them by name even in this moment to give their lives to you to exchange the central fact of their story to you whether it's something they've done something that's been done to them whether it it's cancer whether it's something completely different lord that whatever is the defining thing in our story lord you invite the resurrection to be the new defining thing in our story and we say thank you And if you've never done that before, I, I would invite you just to receive that hope into your heart. Ask Jesus to be the resurrected Lord of your life. That you would acknowledge to him the sin, the suffering, the pain in your heart, in your life, and exchange that for resurrection hope. invite you to, to stand with me. Um, and I, I invited Chris to kind of close with a song that we, we sang during the service. 
And I know what's going to happen in the song as I talked about Jeff, and you're going to feel tension in your spirit because it's a song of hope. It's a song of victory. It's a song of conquering. Um, And this is the invitation that Jesus has for us is to continue to confess hope and resurrection uh, in the face of pain and suffering and cancer, whatever else you want to fill in the blank with, seven demons. Uh, Intention is what we're invited to live in, to put our hope into reality that is beyond ourselves, beyond what we understand, beyond what we can grasp, maybe beyond what we experience, but we confess that with our mouth. We confess that Jesus is Lord. We confess that Jesus is resurrected. We confess that the reality of what happened to Jesus gets to happen to us. We confess that for Jeff. We confess that for Sherry and we confess that for ourselves. So let's confess that resurrection hope together in song. Jesus, we confess that you rose again, that you conquered death, that you are alive in us. Lord, we thank you for that resurrection hope. Lord, we pray that we would be people of hope and that we would sing that song of your death and resurrection and invite others to sing it with us. And Lord, we sing it on behalf of those who maybe can't even sing it themselves. Lord, we think of Jeff and Sherry as we sing those words who maybe struggle to find the the strength to even sing that song, and we sing it as their family. And we thank you that it is because of that hope that we can be family. In Jesus' name, amen.